Hey everyone, this is Michael. In this episode, Stefan and I spoke with Javier Basurto. Javier is currently a professor of sustainability science at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. Before this, Javier was a postdoc at the Ostrom workshop at Indiana University, where I met him during my time there as a graduate student. During our conversation, Javier talked to us about a large collaborative research project that he's co-leading called Illuminating Hidden Harvests. This is a collaboration involving his lab at Duke, the FAO, or Food and Agriculture Organization, and Worldfish, a CGIAR research center. Hidden harvests here refers to the catches of small-scale fishers that aren't as legible and therefore not as valued by political decision makers. We also talked about patron-client relationships and community-based arrangements as two alternative and often competing models in local fisheries management based on a paper that Javier recently co-led on the topic. Finally, we discussed Javier's integration of postmodern ideas into his thinking and how these relate to his current collaborative project that is based on positivist principles. And this led us to a pretty reflective conversation about commoning, an increasingly important concept in the field of the commons. And on a final note, Javier has dedicated this interview to his two daughters, Sofia and Gita. This is the In Common Podcast. I have heard um, that's something else that's been happening with the podcast episodes in the last like six months is because the pandemic's happening. It's actually hard to just, we've been starting some of the episodes by asking people like, so where are you? How are you? What is your life like? Uh-huh. Um, and like getting that catch up at least initially. So you're actually yeah. in Rome, Javier? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we have, yeah, Stefan, I'm, I'm in Rome. Uh, I, I like Rome very much. Um, I, I'm not an urban person, um, but um, we've been working on this, on this project. Um, it's called Illuminating Hidden Harvests. Um, uh, basically, it's a, it's a partnership between Duke, um, my lab, um, FAO and Worldfish. Worldfish is, um, tell me if this is old hat, but uh, Worldfish is a uh, CIGAR, I don't know how to pronounce it actually, CRGR Center, which uh, it's a network of research centers that are independent of each other, but they started as like, agriculture centers. And is Worldfish, it CGIR? Sorry. Yeah, CGIR, thank you. Um, and Worldfish um, is the only one that deals with fish. Uh, it used to be iClarm. And so it's, it's essentially the, the, yeah, the only research center that focuses on small scale fisheries and it's mostly based in Asia and in Africa. Um, yeah, they have like, I don't know how many offices around the world. So, so, um, I came to do my sabbatical here in, um, 2018. Uh, to kind of get the project launched and it's a massive project. Um, the idea is to collect uh, systematic data, the same type of, of data. Um, well, first we thought it was going to be 15 countries. So we wa- wanted to collect um, environmental, economic governance and nutrition data on small scale fisheries uh, in 15 countries. And FAO through the Norwegian Development Agency and the Swedish Development Agency started um, funding it, and I was in charge of developing the the methodology inspired Mike from IFRI. So essentially, okay. the idea is to 
and and others have had this idea too um, to you know do something in ifri but with fish. Um, and so, so sorry, Javier, but for yeah. listeners, ifri is International Forestry Research and Institutions Program. Started at the workshop in political theory and policy analysis at Indiana University, mm-hmm. looking at and it's one of the standard bearers for comparative analysis of forest governance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so you collected biophysical data and governance data. Um, okay. So here we're not collecting biophysical data in the way Ifri does, which was empirically going to the forests and actually measuring. Here. Um, here we depend on secondary sources of data because um, the goal of the project is to there, there's a vicious cycle. There's a vicious cycle on on small scale fisheries, and in the sense that governments do not collect data on small scale fisheries for the most part. There are countries that do it, but um, but for the most part, most governments don't. And uh, it all gets, if anything, gets clumped into fisheries data. But most of it is is large scale fisheries which are thought to be the most economically relevant. Uh, until recently, numbers have started to show that actually there's many more people doing small-scale fisheries. Anyway, um, the goal was to, to help elevate the, the importance of small-scale fisheries. Um, so the governance, governments collect data on them. Um, and the vicious cycle is because there's no data on small-scale fisheries, governments do not appreciate the contributions they make to food security, poverty alleviation, uh, environmental uh, conservation. And because there's no political will, because uh, there's no institutionalized efforts at the national or subnational level to collect data on small-scale fisheries. So the goal of the project is to break that cycle. And so... So we started with, with this idea of, okay, we're going to collect data in 15 countries and compare and look at the contributions small scale fisheries make to, as I said, uh, poverty alleviation, food security, and environmental con- uh, conservation. And it turns out there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm to this effort. And the donors started saying, well, you should include more countries. And so today we're doing 58 countries. It's a project that has grown to 58 countries, which is massive. I've never thought I was going to be involved in something like that. So we have a staff here at FAO. Um, I mean, we have an, a project coordinator. Um, I don't know. It's it's about 15 staff uh, between those based here in Rome and those based in Durham and, and Duke at Duke and those based in Penang, Malaysia, where Worldfish is based. Um, and it's been a blast because um, it's been a great collaboration between uh, policymakers like FAO and, and the research world. It has been a kind of a really nice um, exercise in devising something that is theoretically informed um, but has immediate political uh, policy relevance, not political policy relevance, um, because the connection with FAO is so, so closely aligned with how the project has been designed. So, so on Wednesday, two days from now, we should have a complete data set, like a complete, complete final data set of this has been, this has been like two years in, in the making. So we're kind of eager to start analyzing. So that's why I'm here. I came the summer and then um, to work on the project. 
Um, and because we're teaching online and because it's <laughs> anyway, because of the disruptions with COVID, I'm still here, but it's, it's very productive to be here right now. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds amazing. What is yeah. it like to work with folks from FAO? Is, I mean, do they have like a normal academic perspective is, or is it quite different? Well, it is different. Um, they are motivated by different institutional constraints. And so they're, they don't have as many incentives to, um, to do research as we have. They have incentives to actually produce information that is relevant to, to countries because their FAO essentially um, responds to the UN membership. And so the UN membership, in terms of, of fisheries policy, um, you know, there's this committee on fisheries coffee that meets every two years, sets the agenda. And in the period of two years, FAO has to implement that agenda. And so there's a lot of technical capacity, but not a lot of time to do theory or to do, you know, to write more than technical papers. And so it has been, I've learned so much about fisheries around the world and, and the issues going on at a higher level. Um, but people do not have a chance to go to the communities um, necessarily. Mm. So my experience from Mexico kind of going to the field has been very useful. Um, but, but no, it, it's been great. We're working with a very dynamic uh, team of small scale fisheries that is really keen about doing things. So it's been it's been it's been great. It's been awesome. And it's been a process of getting to know each other and getting to understand the language everybody uses and, and trust each other. So now we're like a well oiled machine. We, we started in 2017. So it's a long running pro project. Yeah. Yeah. And um, OK, I'm a little torn about wanting to ask you more about this yeah. project versus actually going back <laughs> to the beginning. Well, maybe let's let, to make sure that we get back. Let's let's yeah. rewind like thirty years or something, and hopefully we get Sounds back good. to the FAO. By yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get back to this project because it's something I'm um yeah we're working along a, okay. a lot. Yeah. Um. So you're from Mexico. Yeah. I, I don't remember where you're from in Mexico, yeah. Javier. I I was born in Mexico City, but I really grew up in Veracruz and um where my family had a farm. My grandfather had a farm, a small farm. Uh, with you know some cattle, hundred hectares. Um, it's a small farm in Mexico. Most of the neighbors had farms that were like five hundred, a thousand hectares, like big owners. Okay, and that's where I fell in love with nature and the ocean because it was like twenty kilometers away from the ocean. Okay, yeah. so you did you you grew up on a farm, but you you left the farm to go to the to the coast when you could. Yeah, the, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we kind of we say we grew up there because we spent so much time. But you know, uh, I was, you know, my family. I grew up in a house that was in the outskirts of Mexico City. But we never okay. consider ourselves kind of a, you know, Mexico City dwellers. We we thought we were from the farm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Javier, would you say you have? I, I like this term from like superhero movies, like an origin story or an origin right. moment, like some days or moments you remember when you were, when you had kind of an epiphany about, oh, wow, this really is um, touching me that what, what's happening or what I'm seeing right in front of me right now. I, yeah, I, you know, I didn't realize it until many years later, but um, um, so, so my father is from a town very close to where the farm was. Um, so from this region of Veracruz and, 
and it's a dry tropical forest and and there's a lot of indigenous groups there and my best friends growing up were the sons of the caretaker of the farm which were from indigenous origin uh, totonacos i mean these guys were like kind of my heroes like they could climb trees they could you know they 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 worked with their dad kind of milking the cows and so when i was there they would take me fishing and they would teach me how to you know harvest mangoes from the trees and climb trees which i love um it was awesome so so i fell in love with kind of the, yeah the natural environment if you can call it natural environment because it was a very domesticated i mean dry tropical forests are so domesticated but but i fell in love with the interaction with with nature and i didn't realize um these kids i mean it was obvious they were very poor but for me they had such an amazing backyard like i didn't think of them as as poor um and so i always felt very uncomfortable in mexico city because or in latin america in general because it's a very classist society um yeah social class is so important and i never realized why i felt so uncomfortable uh growing up until i realized how I had really grown up, like who my best friends were. And, and those connections were not allowed kind of afterwards in, in my life. Like when I was in middle school and high school and a private high school, um, people their color were kind of like the janitors and stuff like that. And so I've, I, I never felt I fit. And so the aha moment was like realizing the impact the farm had had in me, not only in nature, but in, in my social interactions with other people. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty amazing way to describe like how you come to the work you are, because there's there's stories about connecting with nature, but then there's a, a part, a, a powerful part of that is, is thinking about social systems as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because I went on to study marine biology because I thought I was in love with marine biology, which I was. Um, and I studied marine biology in the northwest of Mexico. Um, it was a way to escape Mexico City because I went to a high school, a private high school, and all my friends were already kind of thinking what companies they were going to be executives for. And, and I was not interested in kind of finding a job in Mexico City. I want to leave Mexico City. So my undergrad was in uh, marine biology, but, um, but I was really more curious about the fishers themselves than the marine biology. Like... Um, and that that didn't come into view for me. Um, I was I was lucky enough to get a scholarship in the last year of my undergrad. Um, the free trade agreement with the U.S. and Canada came into line. This is like the first one, not not this one. Uh, NAFTA and NAFTA, uh, yeah, it was like in the late '90s. And NAFTA had an education program where two students from the U.S., two students from Mexico, and two students uh, from Canada will get selected every year and they could go and visit, um, stay in Mexican or, or in the U.S. or in Canadian universities. So I was, I was actually a standby and the, 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 first, the two first selected guys didn't want to go. And I was the third one and, and I said, like, yeah, I'm going to go. I don't care. And um, the two universities in the U.S. were one in Louisiana and one in uh, Rhode Island. And the two in Canada, one was in Halifax and the other one was in Newfoundland. 
I have no idea where Newfoundland is, but when I saw that it was like 50 degrees latitude, like, oh my God, I'm so close to the pole. I'm going to go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the farthest place I probably will get a chance to go. Um, and so there, when I arrived, it was in the middle of the cod moratorium. The cod had been overfished. So I don't know if you guys know the story, but um, it's a famous story of, of fisheries over exploitation. Not only fisheries over exploitation, of conflict between fishers and scientists. Because, you know, Canadians are, are well known for, for their fisheries biology, right? They're very good statisticians and, and they had um, made calculations of how much cod was left. But the fishers had told them, you know, and the, and the, the government has said, you know, there's enough, enough cod out there. Um, go ahead with your season. And fishers were like, no, things don't look very okay for us. Like we're gonna, having to go farther out and the fish are deeper and and finally they they redid their assessments and they realized that the fishers were right that the fisher was way over harvested over exploited and they put a cod moratorium and hundreds of thousands of people were just sent paychecks um uh not to work like unemployment checks and so when I arrived to Newfoundland uh, to to school, fishers were in class with me. They said, "You know, I'm I'm tired to spend my check in the bar, like in the pub." I decided to go back to school. So, so we were in school, and this fisher will will tell you know the guy that was teaching aquaculture how wrong he was because things didn't work like that. Um, and then the the music scene like the pop music was about the change of life and fisheries over exploitation i've never heard pop music singing about fisheries so i was like wow it's all about the people and so so when i came back to mexico i i i was more interested in in starting to work with fishers than than kind of continue doing marine biology okay. which which was great but yeah not as satisfying and so how do we get from that point, Javier, no, that's, that's amazing. Like, how do we get from that point to you ultimately ending up at, at Arizona working with Adela Schlager? Like what's yeah. the steps there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I was, I did a, my undergrad in a university that was in the Northwest of Mexico. And when I came back from Canada, um, a couple of friends were thinking of starting an NGO. Well, not, not true. Um, I came back from Canada and I was unemployed and I came back to university to, to Mexico city and I didn't want to be in Mexico city. So I called all my friends or my biologist friends said, do you have any need for field work assistance? And so I ended up doing field work in the outer islands in the Pacific of Mexico, which was amazing. And then some friends said, you know, we're starting our PhD and, um, two hours north of where our university was, and we're setting out camp there, we're renting a house. Uh, why don't you come and be our assistant? It was three of them. So between the three of us, we can pay you kind of for food. And so, and so I went, like I didn't hesitate like a second, like this is my way out of Mexico City again. Um, and the opportunity while we were doing this, I was doing so much field work, it was not even fun anymore. Like it was so much work, um, mm. but, at, but, at, but at the time, uh, the opportunity to start an NGO came about the, 
the WWF Netherlands um, was funding the beginning or the the emergence of a or of a hundred percent Mexican NGO because in the Gulf of California where we were, which is one of the biodiversity hotspots in Mexico, it was only the big the bingos TNC Conservation International WWF, and they thought. Um, a Mexican NGO was needed. And that was something we knew and we kind of like wanted to see, but you know, nobody could make it happen. And so this, somebody came saying, you know, we're looking for suggestions of who might be willing to start an NGO. And so we were so focused on research that we said, yeah, we're going to start the list for you of who we think are honest, hardworking people. And we literally started a list and two days later, later, as we're sitting at the table, hit us like, we're so dumb. We should, we should, we should do it ourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're living grant after grant after grant. Why don't we do it? Like we already have three projects, three dissertation projects that are funded by WWF for six months. We should do it. I don't um, know why it makes it reminds me of just like some it, it's not even a, it's a made up scenario like someone you really like asks you like hmm who should I go on a date with and you're like oh I know three really nice people you should exactly. absolutely go out with them and you're like it, wait a minute it's a show of how insecure we were like how not prepared to kind of jump to the real world we were and so and so we decided to jump in full on and um this was in 1999. Um, so today, uh, the organization is called Comunidad de Biodiversidad. Covi is is one of the leading uh, NGOs uh, working for. Well, the name is Comunidad y Biodiversidad. Kind of, it's it was about um, the community uh, maintaining the way of life of fishers and at the same time uh, the biodiversity in which they depend. So. The organization has grown and has you know three offices in Mexico and I used to be in the board and now I've stepped out. Um, but it's a great organization that grew out, out from from that. And so, to answer your question, Mike, um, I decided as we were starting the organization, I realized I came <laughs> I came across a paper by Lynn in the field. Like we were in the field and one of my friends doing his PhD. Um, had read Lynn and he said, you know, you should read this, you, you, you like it. And so I started thinking, boy, you know, there's so much out there. I need to go back to school and, and get better prepared. And the closest university to where we were living and working that will allow me to still be connected to this place and to this project was the University of Arizona. And so that's the reason I went there. And the very first class I took the very first class I took was environmental policy by Adela Schlager. And she started talking about Ostrom and she started talking about um, this theory that really painted what I, I had experienced in the field with fishers. And so for me, that was very powerful. Like this lady hasn't been in the field, in these communities, and still she's able to, to to write and, and be so accurate with the behaviors I'm experiencing. And, and I said, you know, can, are you willing to be in my master's committee? And that's how Adela and I started working together. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you started working with Adela and like yeah. she, she was your master's advisor. 
And I was, yeah, I was, yeah. And she was not my main advisor. Um, she okay. was my master's advisor and I was in a school of natural resources, uh, renewable natural resources. And um, I started getting more and more interested on, on working with her and, and institutional analysis. And I ended switching programs to do a PhD with her. And she was at the School of Public Administration and Policy, SPAP. And the school was within the, the College of Business. I thought, you know, at the beginning, I was like, there, I, I cannot do this. Like, you know, from biology to the School of Business to public administration, it's like, and, and some of my, my friends were like, are you crazy? Those are the evil people. Those are the <laughs> yeah. And, All right. and no, it was actually great. Um, it was great to get into school of public administration and to learn a completely different way of looking at the world and and do academics and and really learn about human behavior and yeah, the behavioral sciences. So so that's uh, when I became in touch came in touch with Lynn as well. Um, a meeting at this Santa Fe Institute. Uh, they were starting to work on, on some of the complexity issues um, with the Resilience Alliance that that I, um, Steve Lansing, Steve Lansing, anthropologist, complexity theory. He was at Perfect the University Order of Arizona. Perfect order in Bali, yeah. That's right. So he was at the University of Arizona. So he was part of my committee. And he invited me, he was a fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. So he organized this workshop with Marty and there is um, Brian Walker from the Resilience Alliance and um, other people like that and 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 Lynn and I all the coffee shops I told Lynn about my story working with Fishers in Mexico and Lynn just listened to my nonsense for like for all the coffee shops in the one day meeting or two days meetings I can remember. Now I'm so embarrassed. I took so much of her time, but she just like, she just smiled and listened to me. And, and she said, and, and then later on, we invited her to my dissertation committee, but that's mm. how I met her. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. being at some meeting where we talked about this, like this weird idea of like, um, academic progeny, right? Where mm -hmm. you're kind of Lynn's grandchild because <laughs> you're the student of Adele Schlager, who was one of her early PhD students. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it was awesome. And then, um, yeah, getting to the workshop when you guys all were there was super, super amazing. Yeah. Mm. So many, so many people, um, so many, so many people, so many lefties, by the way. Um, Go on. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a lefty? Oh, I thought you were talking politically, but you mean like in terms of just the hands I use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm mostly a lefty. Yeah. We don't have enough time for me to explain how, like, how that I, yeah. And that I happened. use my right as well, but like, yeah. I think Gustavo is a lefty, uh, Forrest is a lefty. I mean, there's so many people that were at the workshop because I always notice who's a lefty and who's not because in Mexico, there's, there's no infrastructure for left-handed people like every, and well, around the world. So I, every, you know, and so I arrived to the workshops like, oh. There's actually a majority of, of left-handed -hand, people here. <laughs> anyway, something you will notice if you're a lefty, yeah. I notice, it be, <laughs> I notice other people noticing. Like yeah. people like that I don't know 
have like noticed me writing something at a bank or something. I'm like, oh, you're a lefty. It's like, oh yeah, I didn't know that was like a thing, but yeah, yep, yeah, I, yeah. I am using my left hand. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a pain. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, digression, but um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's, so that's that's how I arrived to the workshop. So, and what did you do for your PhD dissertation, Javier? Was it back in, you know, doing fieldwork back in Mexico, et cetera? No, I decided, um, I decided that I wanted to get away from fisheries um, to see how other fisheries and, and Mexico to see how other countries solve collective action problems related to biodiversity conservation. So I traveled a little bit and uh, while traveling in Costa Rica, somebody had told me about Dan Jansen, uh, this ecologist that had started a national park. And so I ended doing a dissertation looking, trying to understand why. So Costa Rica had the centralized decision making of biodiversity conservation and biodiversity management and created 11 conservation areas around the country. And some were working better than others. So my dissertation was to try to understand why some work better than others. So it was actually not on common pool resources, it was actually in biodiversity as a common good, a public good. But it was about understanding the administrative, uh, yeah, the, the team of people administrating and managing these areas and how their successful collective action allowed them to um, work towards a public good better than, than others. And um, another coincidence is that when I was at the University of Arizona, Charles Reagan was there, um, kind of the developer of this method, uh, qualitative comparative analysis, QCA. Um, and I was very interested in learning QCA. Um, so, so, so I had an intermediate sample size because my unit of analysis was not the conservation areas, but the small programs within cons each conservation area. So I had like 17 programs to compare. Okay. So, so using qualitative comparative analysis. Um, so, so I had a really good excuse to use qualitative, you know, QCA anyway. Yeah, I feel I'm giving you two long answers for your very... This is all great. These are supposed to be long-form interviews. This is okay. the opportunity we have. Exactly, finally. Sounds good. Have you... Yeah. yeah, yeah. You had such a detailed recollection of the different stories and experiences that you've been through leading up to this point. Have you had different iterations of that, looking back at that as you've gone through your career and, and, and life and internalized those in different ways and drawn on different experiences uh, as you move forward? Hmm. You mean kind of um, seeing how they, yeah, are you thinking a particular experience or? I, I get the impression, at least with myself, as I go forward, I, I look back at things which happened to me and I, I see them from a different angle. I saw that I had an insight, which I didn't understand yeah. really. And then I had a certain experience, yeah. which then only later oh, affected me. And I'm wondering as you, because you've had quite a, a diversity of, of folks that you've worked with in different places, how you've internalized that and use them those insights going forward. Oh, yeah, I feel I've had um, a number of, uh, I've been lucky to have several mentors um, and I, I realized I, I didn't, I haven't realized um, some of the lessons have come later. Um, but, but, but one of the, so, so actually the, the specific example I can think of that was very illuminating was, the first community, uh, fishing community I worked with was an indigenous community. Um, and I started working with them through this period of starting this NGO. And 
and they they fish this pen shell by diving. Um, Mike and I were talking last week about this hookah diving. So they they Mike they, they harvest this pen shell. It's 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 a clam by hookah diving, and and it seemed that this community hadn't overexploited this clam. Although the clam is is distributed in many other places, in kind of fishing areas controlled by other communities, they, they have overexploited it, but this community hadn't. And so that became my master's thesis, like try to understand how the community control access. And I was, I was so um, influenced by my idea of conservation, thinking, oh, these guys are not overfishing because they want to conserve the resource, that my first interpretations of, of this you know, setting was was that oh they they are conservationists in, in an indigenous so way. Some kind of ethic there or something. There's an ethic and yeah. And later on, later on, as I kept doing research, I realized um, that that it was not that they there was an, a particular ethic towards the research. It was uh, essentially self determination and an impetus of self determination, meaning the presence of outside fishers for them was was a sign of uh, all the outsiders come to dominate us. Just for them, the presence of outside fishers, it was the same as Spaniards and Mexicans before. So the impetus of conservation was not about the resource itself. It was about protecting their territory because of their history. So, so Stefan, I don't know if that answers the question. That was a kind of a aha moment in, in helping me realize like, oh my God, I've been assuming the wrong things for, for two or three years working with this community. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a really nice example how you can put different lenses on top of your knowledge and you keep right. building a, a mountain yeah. of, of lenses, which you can look through uh, instead of just seeing one. That's oh, it's, yeah. have you had a chance to go back yes. to those communities at all? And yeah, I've made a point of, of going back to that, that community every year. Um, I'm lucky to teach a field course at Duke. So every spring until COVID started, um, I for 10 years, I've been going back to teach this travel course or this field-based course in, in, the, in that community. We visit other communities, but it's my way to keep doing long-term research in one place. Um, which is, it's amazing, but it's hard because you see people, um, yeah, you see how the community changes too. You know, people I, I you, met have passed away. Yeah, stuff like that. It seems like it's hard. You, you, I imagine one reason it's hard is that you can't kind of give yourself a happily ever after story about the community and just kind of pretend that everything's going to be fine, but you see that life keeps going and new things happen. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've come much more postmodern in my work um, it's made it easier. <laughs> yeah, because, um, and I remember a lot Lynn telling me a story where she was being, you know, she was invited by the Moore Foundation um, to spend the day with them. And they kept asking her, so what is kind of the secret sauce or what is like, tell us kind of the, you know, tell us what, what is that we need to do to make things work. And she eventually kind of lost it a little bit. And she said, you know, there's no secret sauce. Like it's always gonna governing the commons or governing a particular common pool resource or, or coming up with a conservation intervention that is successful 
always going to require adjustment and fiddling with it. You're never going to arrive to like, okay, we've done it. So, yeah. so, so, so that's a little bit for me going back to this community every year. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it's all about how they confront the next issue and the next issue and the next issue. It's never going to yeah. end. Yeah. Can you, can you unpack for us a bit what you mean by having gone postmodern? Um, I, I, think, I, I can't let that go. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm influenced by my colleagues at, at Duke, um, kind of human geographers where, um, they're much less positivists, um, than, than I, I was, or I am, or I can be sometimes. Um, and just, you know, realizing that, that a community is always in flux and, and really doesn't have like, um, um like we yeah there's so many yeah there's so many um ways to tackle this but uh for instance um yeah we just wrote a paper about uh kind of trying to summarize the history of this community and and we use the concept of commoning as something that you are in the commons in this moment and this moment only because the way we feel we think and 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 then in a different moment, you're in a different, you, you might not be commoning anymore. Um, so, so it's bringing much more subjectivity and um, feelings too. You know, there's uh, the use of emotions and how the use of emotions. One of my PhD students just wrote about the use of emotions to <laughs> enhance collective action or, or try to, to build collective action among fishers when they speak very passionately about something or how we perform certain acts and the, the performativity plays a role. You know, when you marry and you say, I commit, you have performed marriage. And it, it, has, it has a strong, you know, symbolic, symbolic um, power, right? That stays uh, and provides a commitment for cooperation and trust. And so, so, so I guess I, I, when I say I've become a little bit more postmodern, I'm, I've been able to learn some concepts that I find useful in applying to my thinking of cooperation and how, how facilitates collective action. Yeah. Does it, is it right that it, one way you could look at it is focusing more on this, this process and less on specific, maybe short-term, more easy-to-measure outcome measures and looking more about the construction of community, the reconstruction or deconstruction of community and interpersonal relationships as something which is a continuous over time, something which never ends, something which there's not really ever a single outcome. Yeah. And yeah, yeah that's right. And yeah. Stefan, can I jump in and ask you if, if you think that's what the word commenting means? I wouldn't say I have a fixed word on commenting because I've heard different folks use it in different you senses. You would say your understanding of commenting is a process. It, probably for yeah. me, I would lead more towards that. I'm interested in, in what you think of if it, if it leans towards more that way of thinking uh, and a move step away for uh, from short-term uh, outcome processes, outcome measurements. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I probably wouldn't use the word process. Like, you know, the fact that we're right now thinking about the same thing, struggling with the same concept, we're commoning around commoning. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so we've, had, something... we've had our meta moment for the internet. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah so so it's like this sense of like okay we're in this struggle together but it, but it involves sensations involves kind of um being focused on the same thing uh involve yeah involves this sense of solidarity but it's involves senses too like it's um hmm. and so so it, it can be gone in 30 seconds um but but we shouldn't subestimate the role that can play in building collective action and it's hard to measure probably it's not measurable i don't know um in in any real sense but but if we take such a positivistic way of of how to understand collective action we miss this this elements that are much yeah a lot of human and i don't consider myself a human geographer at all like at, at all i'm just learning um uh you know for some even the idea of bounded rationality is way too rational way too rational right because it's bounded but it's still rationality it's still rationality and 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 the arguments we need to go much much towards yeah towards and and this is not what they say this is what i say i always think you need to go a little bit more to um yeah to psychotherapy and and those kinds of ideas and the role that the subconscious plays in how we express ourselves and how we live everyday life mm. i mean that is the other extreme and i i think there's a lot of valid yeah issues with that. i like this where i think we're all about to take the red pill I forget the, <laughs> yeah. that's the one you take smart. in the matrix or what? yeah no <laughs> <laughs> no because be, yeah what you're just saying that you you're not sure if these things can be measured. And uh, I think on the other hand, we have this tendency that what's get, what gets measured is what gets valued. And yeah. if you're starting to think- Which relates to your project yeah. at FAO. Yeah. Sorry, Stefan, I just right. wanted to make that connection. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. hopefully we can transition, transition to thinking about that project too. But if you're thinking in general about how you move to try to start doing research on those things, even though you, you, you think it's very difficult, what type of research do we need to have more of? What types of, oh, yeah. what types of mm -hmm. methodologies or ways of thinking about the research process do you think can, can really add value there? Yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of people in, in human geography are doing research on those concepts and it's, it's mostly qualitative research, right? It's, uh, and and one I think one of the main tools is discursive analysis, analyzing discourse, because that gives you a sense of how people think and how people are expressing, yeah, their feelings and and their views of the world. But but to be clear, I think we need all kinds of research. Like I don't think we need only that. Like I think we also need, you know, positivistic research, uh, and we just need to be less tribal about about kind of uh, those things don't not speaking to each other like i i would like to see it yeah i think they're all complementary it's just this is a different conversation and i know um mike is into it um yeah but it has to do with incentives in academia right so yeah that's interesting i mean so the the next step in your career path so you went to um indiana university to be a postdoc there with Eleanor ostrom lynn at the workshop and then you were there for two years javier yeah yeah great yeah. and then you got the offer from duke 
at the Nicholas School. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned that you've been learning some of these ideas from your colleagues at Duke. Yeah. Right. You mentioned these. like these. So I'm, I'm curious about um, what facilitated this kind of this act of commenting that you've experienced with these other folks at Duke. Is, is it the kind of the personalities that are in the room or is it something yeah. about the school there that's kind of facilitated this? It is. Yeah. Learning. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually the setting. So um, I will give Lynn credit about kind of the institutional, the institutional setting. So, and I will, I will add that it's not only, only my colleagues, but, but um, the students that I'm lucky to work with, including Hillary, um, Stefan, and Alejandra, and many others that, um, mm-hmm. that are into, into these topics because they take a political ecology course and then they take my course and they try to make the sense of, of these two things. Um, and so <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So wait, what? Uh, okay. But, but they said this. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And because, um, the Marine lab, the, the shop at Beaufort, um, it's a small campus, um, uh, where, but we have a considerable contingent of, of social science. So it's not only marine biologists, but, um, when I arrived, I was the third social scientist and now we are four, uh, out of 12 faculty. So, um, first it's an Island. It's literally an Island, literally an Island. We need to cross a small bridge. Um, so we must all get along with each other. Uh, and so that facilitates interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity because you cannot afford to fight it out to the last of the consequences because you know you're going to meet in the supermarket and your kids play soccer together and there's other reasons to get along. Uh, I mean, and it, I'm, I'm being a little bit extreme in my illustration, uh, but, but the point is that we all get along and the students perceive that. And so they try to make sense of it. How can we get along if we come from very different traditions? Although I, I think political ecology and the commons have many points of intersection and, and, and alliance, you know, for sure. And so, so I think, yeah, um, I think that's what has allowed uh, me to learn. Yeah. Mostly from my students and reading their work and commenting on their work. And, mm. Yeah. Are there political ecologists um, in this FAO project, or is that no. perspective represented? Or <laughs> so, so interestingly, interestingly enough, probably the FAO project is the most positivistic project I've I'll ever do. <laughs> okay, but 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 in okay, but it, it's motivated by it, the motivation of this project is. It, I think it has. Uh, um, I think political ecologists will will agree with 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 it, which is okay. Small scale fishers are marginalized around the world, and you have and they are marginalized because it's hard to get them to count. So how do you do research where they can count? And so the research we're doing is counting them. So. So, so how do we count them in a way that is valid and that increases their visibility and, and at the same time creates tools that they themselves can use uh, for their own negotiations and purposes? And, and so I'm not saying we have resolved all that, but we've had discussions from the beginning that that's what we want to be able to build with this project. Um, 
I mean, that's so, fascinating, right? There's yeah. like, is there a tension here? Or maybe I'm just trying to make it up to... to... There's a tension for sure. Yeah. Well, so there's this critique that we've talked a lot about in this podcast or this tension between like what's visible, what's invisible. How does that mm -hmm. express itself in our own lives as academics? Apparently, I've talked to you about this, Javier, because you said that... A little bit. You've, you've, yeah. you've, I've ranted yeah. probably. <laughs> so, and then we see it in, in governance work. And it's just, it feels pernicious because we feel like we're all kind of dancing. There's a story I like to tell my students. It's, of course, it's about an economist, um, right? An economist like loses their keys in the street mm. and they're looking for them. And a friend walks up and sees them looking under a, a, a street light and they say, oh, you lost your keys. And the, and the economist says, yeah. And the friend says, well, did you lose them there? And the economist says, well, no, but this is the only place I can see. <laughs> right, 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 right. And it's like, well, right. you're not going to find your keys. Yeah. You know, but, and so, but you're, I can, I can feel like I can intuit that you're aware of this, right? That there's yeah. this tension of like, we're going to try to address this tension by yeah. counting. Yes. We're going to, it's, it's, it's not a problem with positive positivism. It's that we're not being positivist enough. enough. We've got to do yeah. better counting. No. And okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, yes. And the, the reason for that is that, okay, if we want to address the, if we want to actually Imagine that every country in the world, their Ministry of Fisheries had, you know, counted small scale fishermen. So they said, okay, we have uh, estimates for large scale fishers, but for we also make them for small scale. We measure their catch, but also we measure the nutritional value of the 10 most harvested species and we, we measure employment. And so every year, the fisheries department, imagine this is a dream, will publish, you know, uh, catch, employment, and nutritional content of species. Governments, local, state, and national governments will start making decisions probably very differently because, because they will think, oh, maybe it's actually we need to develop policies that are more, more about food security or poverty alleviation or about you know conservation of the of the resources but right now right. because that doesn't exist the only thing that gets counted are the fish and and so and so we think that a necessary step is to to get the ball rolling is to count them first kind of to make them visible as James Scott will say to make them legible to this yep. day. Legend, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, part, it, it remind, sorry, go ahead yeah. here. No, no, sorry. Um, it's just that, that our experience working with fishers, they also want to be legible. They also want to be legible because they're so disadvantaged that they don't, they're not able to get a share of the benefits of the state because they're not legible. So it's a yeah. little bit of a tricky, tricky balance here. Well, um, it's better. It reminds me of, right? So the U.S. is undergoing this census, right? And so we're counting and counting in this context is a political act. It's yeah. because it has these huge political and policy implications. And that's really what's motivating it. It's not, I mean, I was, maybe it was a straw man that I was kind of like, well, isn't this just positivism and sheep's clothing? But it's really, this is going to, we're counting this is because there are formal bureaucracies that are going to use this da these data to make really important decisions. And, and we need to collect the data in a sound way so that it's seen as valid, right? So we need to be very good positivists in the sense that 
you know, do mm -hmm. it following kind of by the book. The challenge we have is precisely there's no data. The data there is, so the approach we took, and, and here is where we're less, you know, um, uh, I'm not, no, it's not that we're less positivist, but we're a little bit more qualitative, is that the approach we took is, okay, we know there's secondary sources of data. And, and the only data we're going to, because we're not able, like in IFRI, right, to go and measure trees and get a sense of the state of the forest. Here, we rely on secondary sources of data. So we identified within countries, teams of insiders, teams of experts, people that have worked with small fisheries all their lives that could collect the data as we have designed the data collection scheme to be, um, you know, uh, so they, they could collect the data in the way that we had designed it. But then we need to make sure we can compare secondary sources of data with each other. And that is super tricky. So the, so the way we did it is we developed relationships with each of these country teams and we went back and forth in iterative ways. Uh, when they, they submitted the data, we, we had like um, uh, protocols to look at the quality of the data and then go back to them with a number of questions. Um, you know, we don't understand how you did this. Can you explain us how you did this? And this was supposed to be in these units and it's not in these units. Can you tell us why it's not this unit? So we developed conversations with each of these countries um, in French and English and, and in Spanish sometimes um, to be able to understand why they were turning in the data they were. And so, so, so we had like, uh, yeah, teams of people that that now I think they're the experts on, I don't know, in fisheries in Mexico or in Panama or in, well, Panama is not part of the study, the Philippines. But it was this back and forth conversation to understand their points of view and their data so that then we could say, okay, yes, this data we can compare to this other country data and this country, other country data. So that sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work and <laughs> a lot of work. It's been a lot of work, three years. I'm, I'm interested in this, and I think hopefully it transitions a little bit to the paper that you had out this earlier this year governing the commons yeah. uh, beyond the, the harvest or beyond the, the catch. And it made yeah. me think of this idea that that catch statistics and the actual data that's being harvested, not just in fisheries, but I think also in, in forestry and other natural resource sectors, has always been the bread and butter of like the, as the governance outcomes. That's the thing that people value the most. That's the that's the data that everyone wants to see the the time scale uh, graph of, of catch statistics or harvesting but there there's so much more uh, which happens in communities in on the social side either pre-harvest or post-harvest and I think you've done some conceptual work thinking about that and perhaps there's some some critical indicators you mentioned food security and employment indicators which tell a much larger and detailed and richer story beyond catch statistics in terms of thinking about how we define success or how we define what is sustainable in these types of fisheries yeah. and i'd like to hear a little bit on your thinking on on how we move more toward expanding yeah. to towards the pre and post harvest yeah um yeah, part of part of the issues, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think how we move towards appreciating that is 
is helping shape a research agenda that goes beyond harvesting, which is what we try to do in this paper by by linking activities that have happened before harvesting to outcomes in harvesting. Um, so, so the data that we had in this paper, um, I was able to to get the personal notes of this fish buyer uh, on on who he owed and and how much and so for each fisher this fish buyer had uh, notebooks and notebooks of of his personal accounting um and through those notebooks i realized that a, this fish buyer played a big role as a creditor um so the fish buyers have you know a bad reputation because they pay a price and they think that's, you know, exploitative and many instances it is, but, um, but you realize they also play an important, uh, role as creditors. And in fact, if you're a fisher that only went to second degree of school, you're never going to be able to access a loan from a bank. And if the fish buyer lends you money, um, and lends you money, not only for, you know, because Part of and this is goes to the pre-harvesting, um, lends you money to for gas and for lunch and for bait. This enables you to go harvesting. Um, but so there's at the beginning of an economic relationship there. Uh, but if you have a good relationship with your creditor, with your fish buyer, he can lend you money to take your kids to the doctor on a Sunday, or to pay for a new tire in your truck that just blew. And so, so it becomes the most personalized source of credit you can imagine. I don't have a source of credit like that. Um, and so there's, and yeah. Javier, just to jump in, I, I find it really interesting that you labeled this a patron-client relationship. And I guess that's more common than I had noticed in the literature. So that's yeah. really what you mean by that term, the patron-client relationship yeah. is this nexus of, of, yeah. of crediting. Of crediting and yeah. So, so it's a term that I think is used more in agriculture. Um, yeah, where the patron is the fish buyer in this case and the fisher is, is the client. Um, mostly because in, in these structures that are becoming more and more common in, in fishing, uh, the patron, the fish buyer owns everything, all the means of production. So the fisher- does, yeah. Sorry. No, 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 sorry. It's a very interesting term. Okay, I'll, you yeah. go, I'll stop. <laughs> No, I was just going to finish saying the fisher loses all the meaning of a fisher, becomes just labor, an employee. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, when I read that term, I was, it just, it did a lot of sense making for me, right? There's so much kind of baked into that term. It feels like it speaks to power asymmetries, right? Mm -hmm. Where the pay, and this, I feel like that's where we normally experience the term, right? Like there's, yeah. there's a patron and they're really wealthy and the client. There's just a very big yeah. class difference that some, it feels implied by the term. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we were deliberate um, adopting the term because of that, because most uh, pattern client relationships, there's a big power differential. And, and as I was saying, you know, um, yeah, they they now they own the boats uh, and they they just hire Fisher and, you know, here, I'm going to lend you money to go fishing. And if you bring the catch, we go fishing again. And if you don't bring the catch, um, I hire somebody else just so you know. is it really like the it, it feels like the the fish buyer is a small business and the fishers are you use the term labor like it, that's their labor is that a fair characterization of some of these situations 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, especially at least in Mexico, but I think it's more and more happening with the liberalization, with the, the, you know, the structural loans that were given by the World Bank in the mid-90s. There were reforms made um, to make, um, give property rights to about fishing to others um, that were not fishers. Meaning before these loans in the 90s, only only fishing cooperatives in Mexico could acquire fishing permits. And a fishing permit is, you know, it essentially gives you property rights over over the fish. Um, But this, you know, around the world, this move towards free markets um, said that, you know, you need actually to take away those restrictions. So those that value fishing permits the most can, can access them and have them. So when they took out this, you know, they changed these policies, capitalists, people with a lot of, of, you know, access to capital got fishing permits and say, you know, and told fishers, you know, you can work for me, you know, you can work under me. Um, I will give you a boat. I will give you money. You can borrow, you know, I will lend you money for your bait and, and gas and you bring me the fish. Um, yeah. So that is happening more and more that fisheries are structured not by small owners that are independent, but, but by somebody who's working for somebody else. And that has huge implications for harvesting. But if we only focus on the harvesting aspect, how many fish we're taking out of the water, and we don't take account these labor relationships and these structures based on credit and other issues, we're missing, which happened in the pre-harvesting phase, we're, harv- we're missing a lot of what's happening in harvesting. I mean, to tie this back to something we mentioned earlier in the conversation, could you call this a process of uncommoning? I mean, because I've heard commoning versus like privatization is sometimes also being talked about as being um, oppositional forces. And so this feels like it's moving away from a a more commoning sharing um, dynamic in these fisheries. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I haven't heard the term used like that, so I okay. cannot tell you. Um, but I will not. Yeah, I will not use it. Um, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I mean, we can think about it. Um, yeah, if commoning is something that you know can happen in the moment where we're sharing certain idea or or uh, image of something, and and we are sharing an experience. Um, yeah, uh, structuring fishing by this pattern client relationships, um, takes away all the commoning that used to be, it becomes, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I will have to think more about it. Did you, in the case that you looked at there, was the, was it a competitive patron client market where there are multiple patrons and fishers had the option? So it was more of a, a market where you had a choice and, would you expect their difference where you have uh, maybe a, an island fishery where there's one patron and this person has a lot of power and, and they can use it as, as they see fit versus a, a, a community which is closer to a larger market and there's maybe five, six, seven patrons and they have the competition amongst them mitigates some of the issues? Yeah. So our case exactly was this, um, the latter one that you mentioned. Um, it was a... A community where there are five or six fish buyers or, or patrons, but 
I will argue that unless you're in a big city or like if you're working in the context of this community where we were, which was, you know, five, six thousand people, there were five or six fish buyers. And so although they competed a little bit, a little bit, they know each other and it's actually in their interest to coordinate, to engage in successful collective action among themselves and create a um, cartel. Yeah. And so, and, and, and we haven't published this, but I find this really interesting. The dynamic we've seen is that in times when there's a lot of fish, um, the cartel dissolves, they start competing. Um, cause demand for fish can be, we can think of it as an infinite depending what it is. Um, but you always want more fish, especially if you can freeze it. Um, and so if there's a lot of fish, um, you start breaking the cartel and offering fishers, you know, half a dollar more or whatever. But in, t in times of there's less fish, um, you see the coordination happening again. Like they all act as a cartel. Um, and so one of the aspects we have in the paper is the, the aspect of, of cheating. Uh, fishers labor also wants to take advantage of the cartel breaking up. If, if you are my patron, like if you, I'm working for you, you lend me money for gas and, and, and bait, and I promise to make, to bring you the fish. Um, depending how much trust and reciprocity we have, I bring you back the fish. But if I know Mike is offering slightly better price, there's a big temptation to actually at least land some of my fish to Mike. So, so I get a little bit more, more money out of my effort. So there starts to be these dynamics of that are driven seasonally by the biophysical environment and in complying with each other and and cartel behavior that are, are essentially yeah seasonal. Which is I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. It, it definitely fits with this more general model. I think we apply or, or we see in lots of situations where collective action or at least yeah is driven by scarcity. Yeah. Or at least perceived scarcity. People get together when there's a problem. Yeah. In fact, we should think seriously about it because um, if you see it in the places where where you work, we, we could write something about it. But the, 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 the pattern I've seen, I've seen where I work is, yeah, uh, times of scarcity, there is less cheating to the patron, more cartel behavior. In times of abundance, um, there's more cheating among, you know, fishers to the patron and and more competition among fish buyers. Um, and it's very coupled with the vice physical environment. Hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, so Javier, in this paper, you ultimately compared these two models, right? The more cooperative, the cooperative model yeah. and the patient client model. Yeah. And yeah. Can you just describe for listeners, like what the main, like why you wanted to do that and what the main finding of it was? Yeah, the, the role, the, so, so the main point of the paper is to argue what we had said, that we, to understand common pool resources um, governance better, we need to move away from too much attention to harvesting and, and integrate other aspects that happen pre-harvesting. Um, so so I say that because the purpose of the paper was not to do a comparison necessarily. That was not the main goal. But we want to show the two dominant forms of organizing fisheries that we see around the world are either through a patron-client relationship or 
either through an organization like a cooperative where you pull your resources together and act as a collective where you really depend on, on successful collective action to create benefits for the group. Um, and so we, we argue that for those fishers, for the fishers themselves, this way of organizing, this way of building institutions or this in institutional structure is more beneficial to them than, than the way of organizing under a patron client relationship. Um, where they are more easily exploited and, and they end up uh, more in debt uh, than, than not in debt. So, so we, use, we were using this not as much as a comparison, but to show what can we learn by looking at these two main dominant forms, forms of organizing around small-scale fisheries, um, or these two main institutional forms of, I call them, these two main forms of self-governance in small-scale fishing. Um, hmm. So I mean, it's fascinating because I, I work in the farming sector a bit in the Dominican Republic as well. And you definitely see these two dominant modes there where there's the patient client because farmers need inputs. Actually, they need more inputs than fishers do. It's just that they also make more money, at least if they're somewhat industrialized. So they're definitely like they need to borrow money, they need inputs, et cetera, and they can get them from a kind of market intermediary. And that's the dominant model, I guess, with, you know, what we're calling it, the patron client model or mm -hmm. like the NGO I'm working with is trying to get them to organize into a cooperative or a collective mm -hmm. to try to, to do these things for themselves. And yeah. it's been a struggle to like get away from the patron client model because it's in partly because of the power that the quote unquote patrons have in that sector. I've wondered for a while, like how much we actually can learn across like farming and fishing, et cetera. Cause we, you know, so many people, most of us focus on like one sector, Yeah. you know? So it was interesting that like, you went to Costa Rica and you're like, okay, I'm actually going to like do something else. I feel like we could all benefit from, yeah. from doing that time to time, actually. I, I really think so. Like, I, yeah, yeah. We need to do it more actually. Hmm. I was wondering if you've seen any cases where they made an effective shift from a patron client system to a cooperative and it made me think of a case where I, I was in Costa Rica working a few years back in a small scale fishery and they were attempting to do this and it was very difficult to recruit fishers into the co-op uh, because the patron clients had constantly undercut even though they were offering more benefits and it was really difficult to have the fishers see that a slight loss in revenues provided a lot more social insurance in the long run. That's right. I think so. We 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 have a paper in, in ecology and society where we ask the question. So we were working in a region in northwest Mexico where there's 13 communities in a very small communities in a span of 150 kilometer coast. And because of another project, we knew these communities and we we did a survey of the number of fishers there, and we realized that half of the fishers were organized on their cooperatives and half were or organized working for fish buyers, patron client relationships. So we asked, so what are, yeah, what are the, what are the reasons those fishers are organizing cooperatives? And we came up with three, three uh, reasons. One is um, fishers that had a positive history of working together to solve all their collective action issues. In this part of Mexico, it's dry, it's desert. So water provision, fixing roads after a hurricane. So those that had really good experiences working together, it essentially lowers the transaction cost of starting a cooperative because there's no risk. I know what to expect from Mike and I know what to expect from Stefan. So 
forming a cooperative is no different than organizing a crew to fix the road. I know who's going to be the lazy one. We're going to put the lazy one to drive the truck to sell the fish in the market. Um, the other, the other, there was a relationship of how close or far was the first point of commercialization. Because if, if the first point of commercialization is the beach, it's like the fish buyer is waiting you at the beach and you're a fisher that you think you're a really good fisher. Why should you bother to form a group of fishers where actually how much you can earn is going to be decreased a little bit because there's going to be a fee that goes to maintain the group itself. So, so patrons have a way to reduce incentives for fishers to organize around cooperatives by being on the beach. Like I'm going to buy you this fish right now at a better price or a similar price than the cooperative can pay you. I mean, uh, yeah. And so, so for some fishers, there's no incentive to organize around a cooperative unless they have had a really good experience working with their family or, or a group um, around collective action issues. So those are, yeah, I think it's becoming harder uh, for fishers to find a reason to engage in collective action. I argue that, and I think Mexico has done it and other countries, they provide a lot of incentives to reduce the transaction cost to organize around a cooperative. Like, um, I mean, we just led, read Lynn's chapter on governing the commons um, uh, for actually for, for my class. And, you know, how California, by providing places to meet for, for those organizing around the water, lowered the transaction cost of meeting or having very efficient courts where people can actually solve problems. So if the state or the NGO can actually lower the transaction cost of initial organization, there's more chances. However, however, I think that um, features know that the patron is going to be there longer than the cooperative and make calculations like that. Like I can risk to alienate myself from the fish buyer if, if they don't know, if they don't think the NGO is going to be there like for good, like for their professional life, it's like, no, it's too risky. Like if I turn my back on the, on the buyer, when I need somebody to lend me amount of money to take my wife to the hospital, the NGO is not going to do that. And the buyer right. might. So that, that leads me to, um, well, this question, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that we're, you know, three commons folks who are steeped in the literature on community-based natural resource management. Part of that literature talks about how dangerous it is to, to think about a solution as being a panacea. And there has been, there was this pushback in the, I don't know, what was it, 90s maybe, against community-based natural resource management as just the new panacea, right? A, a, against decentralization as the new panacea, which relates mm -hmm. to this. So... Javier, you mentioned that, you know, the, the patrons, these fish buyers have a bad reputation. I've heard anecdotal evidence that it's, it's, of course, more complicated than that. I'm sure there are some benign, maybe friendly patrons and fish buyers. And frankly, the, the services that you mentioned, right, like taking your spouse to the hospital, fixing your tires, you, I think you just said, you said it, right? Like, I would love to have someone in my life yeah. who was just like, oh, can... I would love to have that kind of relationship. They buy my stuff. They, they help me out with this. Such a personalized so, source of credit, right? Yeah. It, and um, are we falling, like, 
can we fall into a trap in, in thinking that, okay, the cooperative model, it sounds nice. Who doesn't like the word cooperative, right? Versus patient client. Like is, yeah. should we, is it, are we in danger of assuming that, that the cooperative model is, is better than the patron client model more than it actually systematically is? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think there's a risk to being enamored with cooperatives or, and we just had a meeting last week um, with folks from FAO that are, that are working in the Southern Pacific, Fiji, and, um, promoting cooperatives as, in fisheries. And one of the questions we had is, look, you know, is this is this the way fishers organize, you know, by culturally and historically in these areas? Because, you know, you cannot force a form of organization uh, into a culture. On the one hand, in the other, in the other, um, by the same logic of understanding, you know, uh, pattern how pattern client relationships work. There's places where there's never going to be formation of cooperatives. If there's very strong patterns out there, uh, they're going to discourage the formation of cooperatives. And what you're going to have as cooperatives in paper, Mexico, you have Mexico. The state has institutionalized, like has given a lot of incentives for the formation of cooperatives since the revolution. And what you have is fishers just complying in paper getting the benefits of the state and behaving as patron client relationships. So, so yeah, we definitely, we have to be very careful. And I think we have to be engaged in sound pol policy analysis to avoid that. Yeah. That's interesting. I feel like, um, you know, protected areas are sometimes criticized as being only true in, in, on paper and not, and not actually in reality, right? And so we have this term paper parks. And now I feel like we're, we have a new term, yes. paper cooperatives. <laughs> paper cooperatives. There's many of those. There's tons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, and uh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I think it, it also yeah. gets to a broader point on privatization that is, is privatization a bad word? And we're all, and is is moving in that spectrum away from from a common arrangement mm -hmm. or a, something where things are shared and people have to work out, which is often very difficult. Uh, the non-optimal solution. I don't think so. It, it, it has to be different ways, yeah. different contexts where those fit and those work. And it seems that the, the patron-client cooperative debate is is one of those examples. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, it's about learning under what conditions a patron-client is going to deliver outcomes um, of interest, whether it's for mm -hmm. society or otherwise. And in what contexts cooperatives do that well, you know, best. Yeah. Mm. But, but yeah, I think we should avoid, you know, imposing one form or the other. Yeah. Mm. Which is very tempting. Yeah. Javier, I also wanted to make sure I ask you, you know, what are your next steps? What are things you're looking forward to do? What are some challenges that you think you still want to try to meet? Yeah. In the Oof. next several years moving forward. <laughs> I mean, right a now, softball to end things up. Yes, that's right. No, right now we're, uh, we're I'm very eager to um, to wrap up this project with FAO. Like to really, we've been working really hard to build the database of you know 58 countries. It's like 9,000 fisheries. It's it's pretty massive. Um, it's pretty massive. We have um, yeah, we we've been meeting with an editors of Nature that they they're interested in supporting the work um and there's yeah there's a gender component for instance you know because gender women have been 
for the most part, um, invisible. So there's a lot of interest in, in the gender component, and that could be a paper. Um, we, I'm, I'm responsible, well, I'm, I'm the co-lead in, in the general thing, but I'm mostly analyzing the governance data where we asked countries um, how they, what are the main institutional arrangements um, for their main fisheries uh, and, and how they, we use the property rights, the bundle of property rights mm. um, to organize how we collect data. So we collect data about access, about withdrawal, which is harvesting. We collect data about management, um, exclusion and alienation. Um, and so to understand how the regulations in place for small scale fisheries devolve property rights or not to fishers and what kind of property rights they give to fishers and have a snapshot of from around the world. And there's some fascinating things like co-management has become mainstream completely. Like co-management is everywhere, at least in paper. Um, and a lot of fishers participate in co-management, it, it seems, yeah. Yeah, so after that, I don't know, Mike, I don't know what I'm going to do after that. Um, yeah, after Take that. a nap. Take a nap, for sure. Take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of the In Common Podcast. You can find our episodes on pretty much any podcasting app. And you can also now find us at our new website, incommonpodcast.org. Here you can find all of our audio content, including a series of methods webinars that will be a part of the podcast moving forward. The site also hosts our blog, which we use to post about content related to the show. Please feel free to contact us through this site with any suggestions or ideas you have. We'd love to hear from you.